0: This is writer
1: and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hite, And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Detail fetishism. Cooking mythical creatures. Off-screen NPC deaths. And CIA UFO hoaxing. Three Cheers for Master is a new card game from Atlas Games. In Three Cheers for Master the good news is that Master has conquered the world! Hurrah! The bad news is that now Master is depressed. Turns out he was not actually prepared for that. What is an evil overlord to do after he achieves his life's ambition? But that's on him. What about you? You're a lieutenant in Master's army and when Master's bummed, it's the minions who suffer. The good news is that Master's gone away. The bad news is that Master's going to come back. The good news is you've got a plan. The bad news is, it's not a very good plan, because frankly, you're not all that smart. Your plan is this. You're going to coach
0: all of Master's ravenous, homicidal, war-hungry minions to pile on top of each other
1: into cheerleading towers. Then, when Master comes back, the minions in your pile will all wave their pom-poms and pennants and hoot and holler and cheer. And maybe Master won't kill you. At least if your tower is best, maybe Master won't kill you. Because everyone else is building
0: their own towers and trying to get Master not to kill them. You see how bad things are? It gets worse. The problem with the towers is that the minions in your tower all want to kill each other. And when the minions at the bottom of the tower kill each other, the minions above them fall. And when falling minions are heavy, that's what a capital H must be a game term, they kill the minions they land on.
1: And hungry minions eat weak minions even when they're not feeling violent. And claustrophobic minions die whenever they're surrounded by other minions. And you can never tell which direction a ninja minion is going to attack. At least flying minions can remain above the fray. Unless someone steps. a heavy minion on top of them and they fall and get crushed and die Preachers cheers for master is a new card game from atlas games it's in stores now look alert minion master is coming The rattle of 20-sided dice, the crunch of nacho cheese Doritos, the sight of Peter Frampton gazing down at us from Frampton Comes Alive double album cover. Tell us we've entered a slightly more detailed version of The Gaming Hut. And today in The Gaming Hut, Robin, you have a topic involving how we know details or what we think about details. Or the the emotional appeal of uh, Baroque detail. There we go. And so
0: this is something that is hardly unique to role-playing games but is very much a part of the appeal of i think probably pretty much of the all of the popular trad role-playing games is the idea of uh, learning and mastering a vast corpus of detail and that can be not only uh, world detail but also uh rules crunch and how things interact and uh, so this goes in a bunch of different directions but it's as I said it's not particularly uh, unique to what it is that we do if you are a an aquarium enthusiast uh, you might learn everything there possibly is to know about fish or if you're a train spotter you acquire all possible train knowledge or if you're a dinosaur kid you learn as much as you possibly can about dinosaurs and uh, or uh, motorcycles or the very particular uh, parameters of guns or or what have you uh, record collectors certainly have this in spades collectors of anything and you can either uh, depending on your hobby you might be physically collecting something that goes with that and giving you a, yourself a sense of mastery and control by doing that or uh, in the case of role playing games you're uh, amassing in addition to your uh, hopefully uh, complete set of game books uh, produced by uh, the likes of Ken and I you're also amassing a knowledge of particular uh, worlds and the rules that we use to interact with them. And so I thought what I'd like to explore is the sort of power of that attachment, how it works, and uh, what as uh, game masters and players and game designers we can do to uh, once we start to recognize how that works and what its limitations might be. So Ken, what do you, you... Certainly you have amassed a huge quantity of detail in uh, your career as a uh, elliptonic historian, as it Mm. were. Uh, What do you uh, sort of, how would you describe the appeal of super detailed uh, settings and corpuses of imaginary knowledge, such as we have in role-playing?
1: Well, I think um, there's a couple of things. I mean, the first, there's obviously some sort of just dopamine hit that uh, some people get to knowing a lot of different things. It's just the act of acquiring knowledge gives you a little ping of reward. And the more knowledge you can acquire, the happier you feel about it. And that is true. Like you say, for baseball fans, it's true for comic book fans. It's true for anyone who has that, that sort of neurochemical trigger in them. I, I don't think it's universal, but I think it's very broadly. Um, uh, it is more broadly present than we might think. The other thing is that when you 're playing any of these games, there is an a social aspect that rewards knowing more than the other guy and i 'm not saying that we play them competitively even when we 're not playing them competitively there 's just a simple you know primate uh pride of place in the pack that comes from being the guy who knows uh that 's part of the forgotten realms or there's or the guy who knows this much about middle Earth or whatever it is that you 're playing in because that is usually rewarded in-game by being able to make better decisions or knowing where the treasure is more likely to be. And it's also rewarded, you know, around the table as the other players are like, hey, good good one, You you've saved us time exploring that cave or you know where we can find that beholder juice if we need it. And it's rewarded sort of outside even the table. If you go online or you're talking with other people, you can sort of make yourself a member of a social group that prizes that kind of knowledge. So even if nobody knows you, you go on a comic book fandom board. And if you know every issue of Legion of Superheroes, the other Legion of Superheroes fans are like, well, he must be all right. He knows every Legion of Superheroes, uh, issue. And so there's a degree of, um, of social pack reward that comes with it as well. And then finally, a lot of these uh, worlds are very interestingly detailed. And so finding out something about them has the same intellectual satisfaction as solving a puzzle or uh, hearing a rhyme or anything else where you're not getting the jolt just from learning something, you're getting the specific pattern matching jolt that, again, we're evolutionarily hardwired to like because it's what kept us alive when we were looking for, uh, you know, things in the tree and saying, was that a nut or a wolverine?
0: Right. And I think the one of the key things about it is that it's sort of a two-stage process of investment and payoff. And just as in storytelling, you will have early on in a story you'll introduce a piece of information, and then it will become important later. In uh, the your real life, if you are oriented as a a mental collector of detail, there's the initial investment of committing a detail to memory instead of simply you know enjoying it when you're reading it in a game work, but then you know letting it. Float off into the ether of your memory. So you've invested something, and then later on, you get the charge of uh, recognition, or, as you suggest, uh, sort of uh, social cachet, or, uh, you know, power over the uh, narrative or setting, by then being able to uh, bring that into effect. And so the this gets us, uh, I think, in the question of what happens when... Uh, as a creator, you start to betray that investment because uh, often, for example, in switches between editions or just if you see something else about your setting that you might want to alter, it's very common, even more so in uh, in comic books, which have this enormous weight of continuity uh, resting on them that occasionally you will uh, retcon something and you might uh, change the setting quite a bit or you might change it a little, However, what you're doing there is if you have a, uh active group of people who have invested their cognitive efforts in uh, squirreling these nuts of information away in their brain and then you change it so that it's no longer the case, they uh, you've taken a resource from them. And I don't think that's the way that people uh, think about what's happening. I think they just have... Uh, they've developed a powerful emotional relationship uh, not only to the content of your work but to their process of investing in it and then you have to uh, sort of balance the cost if you want to change something in a setting uh, against the uh, backlash effect that you will get if you change uh, too much and you know you've caused people to expend mental resources that they now have to abandon and have to relearn which is it's much more annoying to relearn a thing that's slightly different than to learn a totally new thing. On the other hand, you may, may have strong creative or in some cases marketing reasons to want to introduce a new element into your setting. So that's the trade off that you have to look at when you decide that, you know, these elves are no longer uh, the paragons of good in the setting, but now uh, you've, uh, Change their history so that they started off evil and now they're good and now they can turn dark and evil again because you've got the new dark evil version of your setting that you want to roll out
1: yeah um i, I think that we tried not to think about it um as though you know oh my god dc has just stolen my knowledge of the legion of superheroes from me, or, uh white wolf stole my knowledge of the world darkness from me when they retcon things because it sounds ridiculous when you say it out loud, and we don't like to feel ridiculous, but I, th- I think you're right that what, you know, you may or may not have, but it's more like you bought a stock and then the stock crashed, right? I think that that's uh, maybe a better mental analogy you can make with it. You know, I I'd, I I'd, I'd put all of my mental stock into knowing this way the Forgotten Realms worked, and now they've retconned the Forgotten Realms or they advanced them into the new edition of Forgotten Realms, and now that stock has dropped. I I don't have that money to uh that mental money to retire or spend in the forgotten realms the way that i thought i did and it's that you know expectations not met in a bad way that you have to watch out for i think that all that said however the 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 problem of retconning can be matched by the problem of presenting too high a buy-in price if you're going to invest in the stock to continue my metaphor because at some point once you decide i want to be part of the forgotten realms now the stock is $100 a share. If you'd gotten in way back in 1980, whenever it was maybe a dollar a share and it was easier to buy in. And now it's harder to buy in and people are like, well, I know it's going to be worth it because Forgotten Realms is blue chip setting, but I don't want to blow a hundred bucks. I'm just going to take that and maybe, you know, look at some other settings that I can hope will grow up and become the next Forgotten Realms. So you wind up with, you know, on the one hand, a blue chip stock, but on the other hand, it's a, it's a, uh, A corpus of detail that people can't buy into as easily and maybe move away from simply because it's so detailed and exciting. And that, I think a lot of cases is what you'd call that marketing incentive to change everything around. So you can say, this is a great jumping on place, as they say in um, uh, comic book ads. But of course, every jumping on place is also a jumping off place.
0: Right. Because having a, a rich setting that you can follow along as it grows and become more complex and slowly take on board as you demand more and more detail and elaboration is one thing but then coming into an existing setting after a previous generation of gamers have for 20 years been assimilating all of this detail and now they're the and they're the old lions, right? They're the uh, ones who are the guardians of the knowledge. And if you are just getting acquainted with a complicated setting and then join a discussion group and you've got people who have encyclopedic knowledge of it and are ready to swat you down uh, at any moment from your uh, uh, from their purchase of uh, superior knowledge, that then becomes a buffer that makes it harder for you to bring in uh, new players. And that's a sort of a, a social mechanism that we don't often think about. And sometimes, uh, I think when you're getting to the higher echelons of, you know, properties that actually have money and a large audience associated with them, the the question they have to grapple with is, uh, is this setting too complicated to ever bring people in? Uh, isn't it easier to just uh, raise it to the ground and start over uh, than to try and make this uh, both accessible to new readers at the same time it continues to please older ones because your demands change of a setting depending on the amount of information that you have uh, in it if you're just starting out it's just well i just want to know enough to have a conflict that can justify us going over here and getting into trouble and having excitement and fun i don't necessarily want to know uh you know all 12 separate orders of this uh particular type of cleric and how they interact and the subsidence levels of the land outside the, the uh, cemetery. I just want to go and have fun versus the people who, well, they, you know, they've already done that. They did that 20 years ago. And in order to stay uh, connected, they want to continue amassing new information. And so uh, there's a a real uh, tension there. And if you guess the wrong way, you can fail in one of two possible directions. You can either have something that's impervious to uh, new players. that isn't very accessible Uh, Because they have 20 years of homework to do versus uh, something that you basically lock in the current group of people who love your setting, but you never acquire any more of them. And the other side of that, though, is that you uh, if you change too much, you can lose all of your existing fans because you've, as you suggested before, you've uh, dropped their stock price of their investment. Uh, but without actually bringing in enough new people to, uh, to replace it.
1: So I think as, you know, gamers will game in whatever you put in front of them. Obviously, if you do it well and you present an inviting dish, uh, certainly at the table, the G, any GM, uh, is capable of taking even Glorantha or the Forgotten Realms and turning it in any good GM is capable of pre- taking even Glorantha or the Forgotten Realms and turning it into an accessible thing for their table. Because in theory, that's what they've done with everything. Um, do you think that there is a something incumbent on designers to cap out a level of complexity? Or do you think that the different strokes are different strokes? And some people want to go into a, a world that's uh, a, a mile deep, like Lorantha, or some people say, nope, I just want to play in a uh, exciting, you know, world with a hundred pages of setting only to learn. Um, Where do you think that stuff like the real world falls in where you can play a superficial game set in. Pirate Caribbean times, or you can play a PhD level game set in Pirate Caribbean times. And it's kind of all on you, the players. What do you think is the sweet spot?
0: I I think the sweet spot is a little further toward accessibility than a lot of game lines wind up doing because, uh, and this I think is less the case now because the whole model of, uh, create a game and then a huge number of supplements for it is sort of falling away. Um,
1: and not before time, but,
0: uh, (laughs) You, you know, you saw that with the World of Darkness lines where uh, people who are really into it wanted a lot of detail. And by definition, the uh, writers are really into a setting and love uh, a lot of detail. And I think it comes down to always asking yourself, how useful is this in play? You know, what is the payoff of the investment in learning this thing? And if the payoff is, well, uh, it's a small detail that will super appeal to, you know, 10% 10% of the most dedicated people, but it's just going to be kind of uh, confusing or never come up for the rest of the players. So the, with uh, setting material in particular, I think you always want to keep asking yourself, is this going to matter in play? How does this reach the player interface? And uh, a lot of uh, setting material doesn't necessarily ask itself that question often enough for my taste that uh, it becomes sort of a thing unto itself, sort of a closet drama where you're interacting with the setting, not by playing, but by reading all of the material. And sometimes it's not, you want to change details, not because you're worried about accessibility, but just because you're doing a new version and it's, you know, 10 or 20 years on and you see a cooler way of doing things. So uh, for example, when I was running my in-house feng shui game, the player who never listens to this podcast, <laughs> and I had an interesting interaction because I would describe the setting in a particular way, uh, feeling that I had a uh, full license to do so as a person who thunk it up. And he was, oh, no, no, the but the, and the, the ascended are like this. And it's like, well, actually, if I really want to, I can decide they're not. <laughs> and, of course, any GM right. can decide they're not but it's particularly uh, a sort of uh, enjoyably uh, head spinning to have had that conversation where it's like yeah but I just I made up the ascended. <laughs> I can I can
1: alter them if I want so uh, so there you go gamers uh, all your beloved setting changes occur because the designer was arguing with his players yes exactly <laughs> like, oh, I'll tell you what I'm gonna earthquake the forgotten realms you're gonna be a jerk about it. <laughs> Somewhere Mark Miller is like, yeah, that is how I did it. Yeah. In fact, Feng Shui in particular,
0: uh, you know, explicitly sort of uh, sets out a number of different campaign frames. And one of them is this is the reboot of the previous property. And that's why things are slightly different or, uh, if you want to maintain absolute fidelity and in that case it's actually desirable to have little changes in the continuity to reinforce that idea whereas you know, another idea is well this is a sequel and your previous players that you play uh, characters that you played in the 90s are uh, they're the older generation and you're playing the younger generation or they're just sort of timeless or all the different ways that a property recycles itself over time are reflected in a set of campaign frames and so uh, those would imply different ways uh, for a uh, players who started out uh, with the first edition and have made this sort of investment in it. All of those things, if you frame it that way explicitly, allow everybody to pay off their investment. They still get recognized for knowing that this particular detail has changed, even though it's now okay to change it because you're still giving them that, uh, oh yeah, effect, right? That uh, that glimmer of recognition, I think,
1: is is the, the dopamine hit really at the, at the bottom of all of this. Um, I think that there's maybe another door, uh, deeper into the gaming hut where we can talk about how to take, uh, players with big knowledge and let them contribute. I think we've sort of danced around at a couple of other gaming huts, but you know, whether they know a lot about the Pirate Caribbean or a lot about the Forgotten Realms, um, and the other guys at the table don't. Um, I think that there's sort of a, uh, we're, we came at it this time from a macro perspective. Uh, you know, when the whole setting changes, how do you reward all the players for their investment? How do you uh, at least, you know, uh, get them preferred stock in the new issue? Well, if you're seeing another hut,
0: it means it's time to close up this hut and uh, make that uh, something for our, our rebooted podcast sometime in the future. the simmering of soup stock the smell of freshly cut basil in the air the shouting of Gordon Ramsay toss we've once again entered the delicious precincts of the food hut and this week uh we're uh painting off a uh medieval manuscript uh that was uh tipped to us by listener Terry O'Carroll uh and we'll put a link to this in the uh blog post accompanying the episode, uh, but uh, somebody has found a medieval manuscript with a recipe for griddle roasted unicorn, mm. and, uh, and normally in the food hut we discuss uh, non-imaginary foods and sometimes how to prepare them, but since I think uh, very few modern listeners will have a full unicorn-sized griddle. I thought we'd take it in the direction of food and ingredients and mythical creatures as you might find in an F-20 world and uh, sort of examine the question of uh, not only uh, what is the ecology of the monsters you fight and what are the treasures that they're hoarding but might you as an enterprising murder hobo be missing out by not packing up some of the portions of the monsters you kill and taking them back to town to sell as ingredients. So can... uh, if you were uh, a, a uh, F-20 style adventurer, what, uh, what creatures would you be uh, looking possibly to uh, uh,
1: carve off a few delicacies from? Well, I think um, it's, it's kind of an interesting question because a lot of it depends on are you down with eating sapient people? Or sapient things.
0: Yes, the, the inevitable question has, has come up which
1: early. Which is kind of a, a question that we dodge a little bit on Earth, because we say, well, I'll bet chimpanzee doesn't taste good. And if you eat whale, you're like, well, they don't have hands, so how sapient can they be? Right? <laughs> they don't seem too bright. Yeah, they're, they're the ones on the other end of the harpoon, so how smart can they have been? Um, but a lot of people don't eat whale because they think, well, that's that that whale they, they have songs and social structures and so there's a there's a line, even in our relatively unfantastic world, because all the unicorns got griddled up by um uh Jeffrey Fool back in the day, there's a line where you have to say, What do we eat that's sapient? And I suspect in a world where there are orcs and goblins and all kinds of things that are gonna eat you, the uh and who that are also sapient i think that the taboo against eating sapients may be a little lighter than it is in our world um not least because you know if that's the only protein you got kobold makes a fine uh, you know you can do a kobold inside a uh an, a goblin inside an orc you know a, a, a koboblin or something kobobble right. Well, i think
0: different cultures are going to draw that line in different mm-hmm. uh ways and i think the uh, sort of sympathetic uh, quasi-good guy culture, or outright good guy culture, depending mm-hmm. on how black and white your F-20 world is, uh, I think they're going to draw the line uh, just as arbitrarily, <laughs> uh, but they're going to draw it at humanoid anatomical structure. Right. So uh, if you uh, sort of look like a person, even if you're ugly and green, uh, it's just a little too weird to, to eat, eat somebody's eye. So it doesn't
1: matter how delicious sawagin tastes. Because exactly. they're they're going to be pork and fish combined, Robin. Think about that.
0: Yes, and are are they a white fleshed sapient or a pink fleshed sapient? I think that they've got white and dark meat, like chickens. Right. So you, uh, it just might be a little too weird to be eating something where what's left on your plate looks kind of like I'm
1: you, so, I, <laughs> or like your I'm bones. I'm so hungry for uh, Sahuagin now. Um, right. Let's see, so if we're, if we're not eating humanoids, which I guess is fair, uh, let's see, what would we eat? Although there's there's other cultures, right? The, the grayer, you know, the, that, that's probably one of your uh, dividing lines, right? The more sinister cultures, Sahuagin is on the menu. Right. And and maybe it's, it's not even your sinister cultures, but it's like your barbarians, right? They grew up eating orc, and they don't see any reason why anyone wouldn't. Or your, um, your frontier marchers that are like out there on the, on the very edge of civilization fighting the, the goblins. And they're like, well, we, yeah, sure, we eat goblin because guess what? We can't do grow a lot of crops. We're fighting goblins all the damn time. Um, and so they can be sort of, do I like, that? it gives you a reason for barbarians to be thought of as, as a little weird or a little, uh, out there instead of just, well, he doesn't have any clothes, but the fur shorts, poor fella. You know, you, you think, no, he's dangerous because he's been, Eaten p- things that have faces uh, and not manticores, which I guess would be fine. Whereas meanwhile, the uh, snooty, uh, urbane, non-human, annoyed Terrain
0: uh, would quite happily, you know, eat a hunch of dragon, even though the dragon has a higher uh, int rating than they do.
1: Yes, a uh, higher int rating than their whole society. Um, yeah, dragon's probably one of those meats that's great if you can get it, but you can't get it. I wonder if um, if a lot of the, the the beasts that are poisonous, if they're like fugu, right, that there's... Um, the, the 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 meat has a certain quality that is so uh light and delicate and wonderful because all of the evil in the in the beast magically is concentrated in these in these poison glands or whatever. And so but you have to prepare it in such ways that the poison is still in the body when you roast it.
0: Um I think that probably that's what happens with beholders. And right? basilisks. The, the reason there are only super high level beholders yeah. is that all of the uh easier to catch ones have been taken back to eat mm-hmm. and maybe behold and that this is another element right is that maybe uh in this world the uh, uh beholder isn't evil he just resents the fact that uh, people who look a lot like you ate all of his cousins
1: well the eye is probably a delicacy right like um certain yep. cultures love uh monkey eyes and things like that i'll bet beholder eye especially young beholder eye is is super good like a like a big meaty egg and of
0: course, uh, eggs, uh, raises a whole nother thing mm-hmm. is that, uh, maybe, uh, a hey, slicing off a haunch of dragon isn't so easy, but if you can raid their nest for eggs, that's probably like a, not only delicious, but hugely prestigious, right? So, uh, you know, that, that's something that you would then take, uh, to the king and present to him and... Uh, that then means that you've got your arduous trek back with something that can either break and become worthless or hatch and become dangerous exactly, yeah. and uh, you've got to get it across the, the the frontier back to civilization and of course, do you want to make sure that mom uh doesn't uh, go looking for uh, her egg and uh, uh come and try and take it back from you so uh, that might be something that would be fun to start out as an adventure that you know the first scene is you are in the nest and you're taking away the egg and uh, the whole adventure is getting it back to
1: the uh, to the king's court. And then there's the, also the question of maybe you don't eat uh, humanoids, but do you eat their eggs? Like reptile men lay eggs, right? But they're not men yet, they're just eggs. It's like uh, eating caviar. It's not the same thing at all as eating fish. So maybe you eat reptile men eggs and maybe you don't eat orc eggs, but just because they're unpleasant tasting, not for any other reason. I'll bet you eat flumps. Oh, but flumps get yes, eaten all the time. Right,
0: and they're uh, they're supposedly, you know, they're a, a weird, lawful good creature, but they're, you know, maybe they taste sort of like, you know, maybe they're the truffles of the fiend folio. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, they're especially delicious and, uh, and, and valuable. Um, and that also brings up the question of, you know, you're um, the magician of the party uh, on the way back from the dungeon may have to uh, use one of his spell slots for the preservation spell that keeps all of these perishables from uh, going off while you're uh, undergoing the journey. Because, of course, you don't, probably don't have a cooler full of ice because uh, that's not going to last long enough. And uh, you've got to worry about uh, preserving it.
1: What's that creature that just lays on the floor of the, of the dungeon and looks like a, a floor and then you walk on him and he folds up to eat you? Is the trapper is that the, mimic? the mimic? Yeah, because the mimic is basically going to be a big chunk of unarticulated muscle. Right. He's not really going to have any, any bones or anything to get in the way. So that's basically like a giant flank steak. I'll bet you, if you can get a mimic, right? If you can figure out that that room is full of mimic, you just toss in the charcoal and the chives and, um, uh, wait, uh, two to seven hours of <laughs> sixth level fireball at 35 minutes and the mimic will be roasted to perfection.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, all of the fungaloid creatures, your mushroom and mm-hmm. your, uh, Uh, All of those are uh, uh, probably really great in a soup stock. You can roast them. Uh, There's all sorts of uh, possibilities. If this seems a little weird, you could uh, pull back a bit and also just uh, look at the idea that certain herbs might be particularly uh, rare and valuable and uh, grow uh, only in the same conditions uh, where uh, monsters are found. So you might not actually be uh, taking... Uh, owlbear stakes back with you, but you might be uh, taking this sort of uh, glowing herb, this uh, uh, dungeon sage, you know, to be distinguished from an actual sage who knows a lot about dungeons. Right, yeah. You
1: probably don't want to grind him up and put him on uh, poultry. Although, um, yeah, I think that the interesting notion, you've got magical uh, creations like owlbears, so the magical creation would be a truffle chive or a garlic basil. I don't know what it would be, but something where you've got two kinds of plants and maybe one of them is a magical plant. So it's uh mandrake chives, right? And so the, the mandrake grows up, but all the little shoots of mandrake around it that don't become full on mandrakes um, still have a certain uh, well, I mean, depending on if you follow the canonical way that mandrakes come in, maybe you don't want to eat those for other reasons. But, but they certainly have a piquant flavor that many people find delightful.
0: Uh, this could also explain the uh, classic weird hybrids that wizards create, right? A peritin, uh could be have been created uh, not just because a wizard wondered if he could fuse these two animals together, but they wanted an animal to taste uh, of chicken and venison at the same time.
1: Or the cockatrice tastes like chicken and also tastes like chicken, because snake tastes like chicken.
0: <laughs> it, well, and that might be, you know, the the disappointing version of this is just you keep eating monster after monster and it turns out that it they all taste like chicken.
1: Or they all taste like griffin.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, well, I think we've uh, given all sorts of ideas for uh, your character's uh, next culinary expedition. So you can, uh, GMs, you can stock a dungeon that doesn't have any treasure in it at all, but just the uh, ingredients uh, that uh, you can stock for them can uh, more than fund your adventurer's next uh, power-up in terms of armor and and weapons, just by... uh, uh, partnering with an enterprising uh, royal chef.
1: Yes. Uh, or the, this adds a little moment for the iron chef, right? He uh, sends uh, people out to gather these crazy ingredients to bring back to his great cooking competition. He can be the guy in the tavern. Instead of giving you the map, he's like, look, I know where there are some really, really tasty tree ants, and I want you to go chop them down and bring them so that I can griddle my unicorn on them.
0: Yes, ne- never mind the uh, the guy with the funny hat uh, sitting out in the bar. Go back in the kitchen. Ask. Yeah. <laughs> he's the real guy who has the assignment. <laughs> That's right,
1: he's the guy who's going to pay top dollar for um, uh, spices that grow inside copper dragons' uh, lairs. Well, on that note, I think we've uh, covered the subject and can move on. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Sean Phelan asks Ken and Robin, to what extent may named NPCs meet their demise off screen? And I guess what he means by named NPCs are NPCs that have interacted with the players and become part of the story in such wise that, uh, the players feel like they're entitled to be a continuing part of the story because obviously, you know, uh, King Arthur is going to die off screen if you happen to be somewhere else during the Battle of Camlan, or even if you've got, you know, a named high priest of something, uh, Dumbledore, he dies off screen. So you're going to have some of the named NPCs that are sort of vaguer characters that are maybe distant patrons or known celebrities in your world, but characters maybe that, uh, players feel like they deserve to kill or save the life of. How do they get to die off screen? What do you think, Robin?
0: Um, Well, I think there's a a couple of different things to nail down. And the first of them is uh, what does it mean to die on screen uh, versus have your death register on screen? Mm -hmm. So uh, if you are uh, tasked with protecting Banquo and he just disappears and you find out that, you know, oh, well, yeah, he's just been murdered and oh, well, he's gone nothing you could have done. He had it coming Uh, because he
1: murdered sleep.
0: Right. Um, That uh, is obviously very unsatisfying, whereas if you were tasked with uh, protecting Banquo and you come upon his freshly killed corpse, and there's a strange separating wound that could only have been created by an unearthly being, that death still registers to you emotionally, even though you failed to protect him, and propels you further into the narrative and gives you uh, choices that you can make so I think that any uh, any death that still presents a range of choices even though that range is just A or B to the players isn't really off screen in the sense that we're talking about because uh, the narrative uh, the players can imagine things that are going on that their play- uh, characters aren't present for and within the context of role playing that still counts as a, a deaf that happens on screen that matters in the storyline.
1: And that can even be true of someone like King Arthur, right? He dies off screen uh, at Camelot and you hear about it. And now you have a choice to make. Do you go to Camelot and try and keep the, the kingdom alive, uh, you know, live, uh, live his dream. Do you say, well, that's it. I'm going off to Wales and building a castle and never coming out again. How do you respond to that? If you're worried that Mordred is going to take over the throne, you, maybe you haven't heard that he died, or this is a version in which Mordred does take over the throne. You have a question, well, do I swear allegiance to Mordred who is now the only living descendant of Arthur, or do I immediately take up arms against Mordred because obviously he's a terrible person who just killed King Arthur. Um And so even your, you know, sort of Dumbledore's or President James Garfield's, when they die off screen, the players may still have choices to make because the new regime or the new order of things causes them to be in a different place, especially if that NPC uh was important, even to the extent he's the guy that always gave them their map in the dungeon or the, the, their map in the tavern do we go to a different tavern? Do we find out what killed him just because we feel an obligation to him having set us up with all these, um, uh, unicorn heads and such?
0: Yeah. I think role-playing has more of a theatrical paradigm really than a cinematic one in that famously in classical theater, uh, there were periods where characters, n- nobody died on stage. Uh, what happened was instead of, uh, the gruesome thing happening in front of you, uh, the gruesome thing would happen and a messenger would come on and and describe in copious detail the the horribleness of it. And uh, I think that's essentially what you're doing in this example, is that, you know, someone shows up and, uh, you know, he arrives sweating and panting and out of breath and then uh, describes in detail to the players the uh, heroic downfall of King Arthur on the battlefield. Well, that's just as In in a verbal medium, that's uh, just as emotionally pregnant as the players themselves witnessing it. And in both cases, it's the GM describing what happened. It's just in one case, the players' uh, characters aren't physically present and they hear it secondhand. And I think that uh, can, you know, in some ways even be more powerful. Um, But I think what you also want to do is once you establish someone as an important named character, that you make sure that they're, if they do, die off in the battlefield somewhere else if it doesn't create a choice if it's just something that forecloses a bunch of choices that at the very least the choices previously made by the players impact whether that happens or not right um, and that kind of depends on whether you're running a historical game or a game based on uh an existing narrative pattern it might be that you know king arthur is always going to die it's that's the job of king arthur to to die at the end of his story and you might say well there's nothing The players can do to preserve his life uh, infinitely, but you may decide that their choices uh, determine when and under what circumstances he dies and what the consequences of that are.
1: If they dry gulch Mordred and kill him early, then King Arthur may still die at Camelon, but he may die, you know, differently, or he may not die at Camelon, he may die fighting Saxons or something.
0: Right, and so that's where you, you know, the, the ultimate outcome is still the same, but the way in which it happens... And the color of it emotionally, and the impacts on the personal storylines of the player characters would be uh, quite different in in those instances. So I, I think basically killing off a character that the players care about uh, off screen feels like a cheat only if there was nothing they could possibly have done to make it otherwise. But if they've uh, you know chosen not to be a camlin in order to deal with the uh, worm that's rampaging across the the Northlands. Then you know, by all means, you know uh, that's that's fair game, and it and it happens the way it happens because of what the players have chosen to to do or not
1: do. Yeah, so there is a uh, subset of named NPCs that I think players feel more ownership over than even King Arthur, and that might include their you know their DNPCs, their sisters, and their Aunt May, and whatever else. It might include. um the the bad guy that they have marked down as their sort of personal nemesis. You know, you imagine how Superman feels if Batman's like, oh, uh, while you were off in space, uh, Lex Luthor tried something. So I threw a batarang at him and he fell off a building and died. Sorry about that. At least if you shoot him with a gun, because I promise never to shoot people Yes, with I just throw, pe- throw batarangs at people while they're standing on high places and hope for the best. So there's a, a degree to which... They have a sense of ownership over characters either because they're tied to their character, uh, directly by, you know, by spending points for them, uh, which can also be in some games your, your nemesis or they've had story together and they're like, ah, when, when next we meet, uh, Professor Mutalo, then we'll learn, you know, who's the most dangerous. And then Professor Mutalo, oh, no, he was arrested by Doc Savage. He's up at the crime college being drilled out. So problem solved. And they're like, I don't like that. I, I feel like I've, I've had that stolen from me. That, that story element. What do you think? Do you think that's a natural thing? Do you think we should lean into that? Do you think that there should always be, you know, the comeback of Professor Mutalo, that he gets away from Doc Savage and now it's an even a better reason to kill him? I think it comes down to the question
0: of whether you have a protagonist centered universe or not. And I think that should be the default, that, that uh, the unconscious and if not the conscious expectations of the players are that they are the main characters in a story and uh, they get to determine whether satisfying or unsatisfying things happen. The exception can be when you decide to play in a simulated or uh, essentially random teleologic non teleological setting in which uh you know people live and they die and it's like real life and random things happen, and you know uh Dr. Mutilo could be hit by a car, yeah, it can just happen and the the reason it happens is I have all these tables uh set up to determine the random chance that any important character will just be will just die for no reason, and they're statistically. Uh, as much as I can, similar to the way that uh, real life people die for no reason, which is how most of us die, mm-hmm. and uh, and that sort of might be something that's more in the realm of sort of a saga-based game, where right. uh, you know the characters that you care about are ones who uh, grow up and live and and die over time, and you keep replacing your own character, and that is um, much more realistic and simulationist, but also very very much at odds with what we expect from stories and in fact why we tell stories so that if you're uh, going to do that as a sort of an experiment in anti-narrative, uh, I think you want to be very upfront to the players about that and what the implications of that are. And, uh, they have to, you know, really also want to, uh, buy into that because, uh, the whole reason we tell stories is to impose order on a disordered, uh, universe. And, I uh, Think only a very small percentage of people want to have as much disorder in their uh, collaborative narratives as they have in their
1: lives. So um, let's let's move it another type of named NPC. You were talking previously about uh, the character um, who was your old character from the old campaign in Feng Shui. You know, he was in the original uh, '90s universe, and now it's the present. What power do, do they have over old characters who are now NPCs? Uh, you could, and you say, well, no, if they die horribly and their corpse points you into adventure, uh, that's great if it's Banquo. But if you used to play Banquo, if Banquo was your old PC and he dies horribly, that I think is going to also step on players, uh, property, uh, sense. Or do you think you can do it if you do it really strong?
0: F- feng Shui is a weird example because that is a world of melodramatic bloodshed Mm. (laughs) and uh it follows the so is macbeth (laughs) yes uh but because hong kong movies overturn our expectations of what's going to happen at the end and having everybody die in a pool of blood at the end is a beautiful romantic satisfying ending Mm -hmm. very different than the west in fact some uh you know some not so great hong kong movies contrive kind of uh transparently towards a horrible ending the way that uh, (laughs) hollywood movies contrive uh, towards a happy ending and so in in that instance uh i would definitely uh tell the players that remember this is a melodramatic world and if you've got a character a connection to your old character that's your melodramatic hook, and uh bad things happen in uh the uh, narrative universe of a Hong Kong movie. But because that is uh, contrary to expectations, it, you would have to, I think, explicitly warn the uh, players that that was on the table. Whereas uh, in a more explicitly aspirational adventure uh, game, if you're playing the next generation of, uh, you know, your D and D characters, I would, uh, respect the fact that people have emotional ties to those characters and uh clear it with them before anything really horrible happens to them because otherwise or you, you might
1: present a possible threat right you're saying like, well the orc army is moving towards your old character's keep but there's a whole raft of emeralds the size of people's heads over here so are you going to go after these emeralds or are you going to go stop the orc army and lose all the treasure and magic that you've gathered up doing it in order to save your old character at least present it as a possibility that they have control over.
0: Yeah, I would even let them uh, sort of briefly uh, jump back into the consciousness of their old characters that they're not that have become NPCs. But like the orc army is coming, your uh, this is, is this the last stand of your uh, your previous uh, paladin? Does he lead the rest of the old gang out to the hill to uh, uh, head them off for a crucial couple of hours and uh, uh, and uh, die heroically, or does he run for the hills? Yeah. And so, as soon as you phrase it like that, it has the same outcome mm-hmm. right No almost nobody's gonna say, oh, i'm gonna punk my old guy by and let them describe what they're doing, and you might not need to dive into the level of uh you know the rules mechanics of that, but uh you can let them describe it and you know pop back into their uh, old characters and make decisions for them
1: or maybe run the last fight that they have with uh, with with the uh, with the orc king and his and his uh, shamans right yes and and
0: at that point the characters can going wait a minute I don't remember this set of crunchy bits in, in my <laughs> day we were in second edition we barely yeah. had sk- oh
1: the orc ah, got me great cleave why
0: yes uh, and uh, uh, when we get to the point where imaginary uh, characters are dying on screen from great cleaves it's time to cleave on down to our final segment. The pile of mashed potatoes on the plate that strongly resembles the Devil's Tower and the comforting presence of Francois Truffaut indicate that we've once again entered the Elliptony Hut, and this time a uh, perhaps somewhat retro, uh, ufological edition of the Liptony Hut. Can uh, the CIA, uh, not so long ago, uh, debuted on Twitter uh, in an effort to uh, calm us all down and make us feel comfortable with, with their presence. It's social media. That means they're being sociable. That means they're friendly. That means we have nothing to worry about from the CIA. And uh, they've been linking to old documents, even. That's right, because everyone on Twitter is good. Uh, and one of these old <laughs> documents uh, went into the history of Project Blue Book. Can you uh, describe, first of all, for uh, the uninitiated, uh, what Project Blue Book was?
1: Project Blue Book was the Air Force's attempt to um, sort of get a handle on all of the UFO sightings. And officially what it was, was uh, there was a a little tiny staff at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base that would go around and collect your report of a UFO sighting and then analyze it and say, oh, well, it turns out that's when Venus is in transit. So you probably saw the planet Venus or they would analyze it and say, oh, no, that was actually a weather balloon. You saw a weather balloon. And in a very few cases, they would say, well, we don't know what it is. I guess it's an unidentified flying object. And that ran from, let's see, I want to say 1952 ish, but um uh, it, it ran into the 70s uh when the Air Force said, Seriously, we're trying to fight a war in Vietnam and we're screwing around with UFOs. So they uh they shut it down. And of course the Turned it over to Delta Green. Exactly. They turned it over to Delta Green and to um uh Project uh the, the the Project Moondust, the secret uh UFO program, as I explained in Moondust Men from Ken Writes About Stuff available wherever things are available. Uh But the uh Project Blue Book has always been looked at, even by the U- Air Force, as a sort of sop to believers and did not really have any real remit to go into any great depth. And they certainly didn't have top secret clearances. So they didn't know, for example, if such and such a thing was an experimental aircraft or, as the CIA claims, was actually U-2 uh, surveillance planes flying around. In
0: ufological circles... Uh, it is, I think, been presumed that the U.S. intelligence apparatus has a lot more to do with, uh, UFOs and, of course, covering them up than, uh, Air Force's uh, Project Blue Book, which is regarded as a, as a whitewashing operation. And if you, uh, sort of delve into, uh, ufological lore, you find that the people who study UFOs, uh, are approached, uh, according to their own accounts by, uh, Mysterious uh, individuals, uh, sometimes sort of the classic Men in Black, uh, and in uh, some instances, uh, particularly in the John Keel uh, reports of Men in Black, some of them seem uh, disturbingly inhuman, which is, I think, a different uh, category. But while I, uh, you know, reading all of these accounts, one of the things that occurred to me uh, is that, in addition to the fact that these principles and these various movements are sometimes paranoid and sometimes uh, already uh, prone to confabulation, that also if I were uh, running the sort of grad-level part of a uh, training program for uh, spies or uh, people, I guess, more to the point, engaged in disinformation, that I would send them out to practice on the UFO movement before sending them out to mess with the Soviets. Is there anything... uh, to that idea, in, uh, in ufological lore, have you come across uh, in your studies instances of things where you sort of ch- stroked your chin uh, knowingly and thought some
1: uh, uh, deliberate mischief might be going on? Um, not only I have, a lot of people have, because a lot of the people who are sort of tangentially associated with things like the Majestic 12 document leak and the John Lear story about him reverse engineering element 152 or whatever it was out in the desert. Okay, so let's let's break uh, down what those two things are. Uh, the Majestic 12 documents are the documents that purport to demonstrate a secret uh, Truman-era directive to control and... Uh, and understand UFOs and to handle our dealings with them and then disseminate a bunch of lies to the the sheeple. Um And John Lear is a guy who is a, apparently an aircraft engineer of some sort and who claims to have been working on UFO engines in uh, the Nevada desert at Area 51. And his claims have sort of mutated and shifted over time, similarly with the Majestic 12. But there are certain documents that are either... Uh, clumsy forgeries by UFO community people or clumsy forgeries by, uh, the Air Force's, uh, Office of, Science, of Special Investigation, Air Force Intelligence, basically. And. Yes, accidentally clumsy versus, uh. Exactly. Purposefully clumsy. And the, um, uh, the book Dreamland, I believe it is by Paul Patton. Uh, he goes around and he's talking to all these guys who've worked at Area 51, who've been part of the Area 51 program, and who've been part of the disinformation programs, uh, set attached to Area 51. Because Area 51, of course, is where we would actually, uh, fly Soviet planes and test them out. And the fact that we had all these Soviet planes was ultra top secret because when you've got a guy who's hooking you up with Soviet aircraft, you really don't want to reveal even that you have it, much less who he was. Um, And so uh, Patton is basically talking to an AFOSI guy and he says, are you telling me that everything we know about Area 51 in the UFO community is the result of deliberate disinformation by Air Force intelligence to keep people, uh, away from the actual truth. And the guy says, well, I'm not telling you that and I can't tell you that, but it was, it worked pretty well, didn't it?
0: Yes. Yeah. And this motion I'm making with my eye might be a nervous tick, or it
1: might be a big old wink. Big old wink. But yeah, I think that um, any credible look at uh, this sort of uh, way that these, uh, as you say, uh, communities of people prone to confabulation and paranoia wind up pointing in these directions, there is a strong indication. I don't think that they're smoking gun proof, but there's a strong indication that the Air Force was practicing disinformation deliberately to keep people away from what was actually going on at area 51. And if they practice that disinformation on someone who eventually has an unfortunate mental episode, uh, then they're certainly not going to talk about it because then they might be open to lawsuits or something. So it's better to just deny everything, toss it in a bunker and say, well, nope, that guy was crazy. That's why he did all those crazy things.
0: And the, the great thing about that is that from the point of view of the people being targeted, Uh, A disinformation campaign just proves, of course, that they're hiding their alien technology and alien corpses. Is there anything uh, to the thought that uh, they're also just sort of uh, practicing their disinformation skills? Because certainly anybody in uh, a totalitarian uh, government that you might want to spy on and use disinformation against is also paranoid, if not also prone to confabulation.
1: Yeah. I think that I don't know to what extent, you know, you, you know, get to work as the public affairs officer at area 51 and then go on to the American embassy or to the air base in Turkey or wherever in Sir, like where you're deliberately trying to fool the Soviets, because a lot of what you're doing here is also fooling the Soviets. If the KGB in America is chasing stuff down Um, that's what a lot of the people thought, uh, was some of the elements of the star Wars program when Reagan announced it, that a lot of the sort of more science fictiony parts of it were disinformation intended to make the Soviets believe that we were much farther along in lasers or other, uh, uh, directed energy weapons than we actually were. And get them to go back to the Soviet Union and say, the Americans have solved the, the the power projection problem with lasers. Let's put billions of dollars into lasers. And then we just laugh at them because, of course, we hadn't. Although now we have, but that's, you know, generations later. And if you ever really want to completely waste Soviet agents' time, uh, get them investigating the UFO movement, right? Yes, get, get them investigating the UFO community. And if you keep feeding stuff that looks a little bit plausible, you can lay a pretty interesting trail of chicken feed for the KGB, I would think because again they know that there's experimental american aircraft they know our aircraft are generations better than theirs in most cases they'll want to know about our experimental aircraft locations and the soviets uh fall for a lot of stuff it turns out every now and again and there's there's no reason not to keep uh trying and they believed at the time that anything that was that prominently mentioned in american press must have been deliberately mentioned by the government they don't have a uh, an independent weirdo community back in the day, or they didn't have one. Now they have a great independent weirdo community. But back in the day, they didn't have one, and they thought our independent weirdo community was also part of the intelligence network. And so having them even track those people is a great way to waste KGB manpower, much less looking for um, Element 152 and caverns underneath Dolce, in Mexico.
0: So the the difficulty with turning this into a fun story is that the uh, the cover story... The fact that there might be aliens visiting us is so much more interesting and engaging than the idea that they're just covering up for the uh, access to Soviet planes, or in fact even that they're uh, running this dis- disinformation campaign as sort of a back um, a, a bank shot to uh, hopefully draw in and waste the time of uh, Soviet agents. Uh, it's sort of like uh, you know you discover that the veil out is real mm-hmm. and. Yeah. The, um, is there a way to, uh, to look at this angle without eventually revealing uh, to the players great relief that there are really uh, anti-gravity engines and, uh, and reptoids?
1: Well, you could certainly make it part of the, um, if, you, if you're playing like a really straight spy game. And it's KGB versus uh, FBI or KGB versus Air Force Intelligence. I think that you could have some fun just with the personalities in the way, in the way that we've talked about a lot of these guys uh, being exciting and confabulatory and weird. Um, following these guys down the rabbit hole will be interesting in sort of a true detective-y way. Uh, it's not going to be as interesting as gray aliens and anti-gravity because that is kind of by definition more interesting. But the correlation between, you know, U2 flights and UFO uh, sightings is something that you can use as evidence if you're looking for something else. So you're like, um, I wonder if, uh, there's evidence of this other thing that's going on. Well, the only report that we have is a UFO. I'll bet that means there was a U-2 flight. If we can hack into the CIA's U-2 database, we can find the imagery from that and see what's going on. So you can sort of use it as a resource, and it's a cooler – that then makes it a cooler resource and a cooler clue to get than the clue that says, you know, the colonel admits that, yes, the U-2 was flying over then. You know, that that's less fun than, oh, we've uh correlated it with the UFO sighting. But I think that, yeah, bottom line, if you start bringing gray aliens and, and anti-gravity and things into stuff – Players, even, you know, even if they're following the sort of true detective spiral down, you want to give them a, a plausible glimpse of Carcosa at the end, even if you then take it away um, uh, in, the, in the veil out. Right. You might leave the suggestion that there's another layer underneath
0: that they still haven't quite gotten to yet. Mm-hmm. We uh, kicked around in a previous episode the idea of a sort of multi-generational drama system game with UFO contactees. You can certainly have this whole uh, disinformation element show up as a complication, as a tightening the screws, as as drama system calls it, or, uh, you know, getting entangled with, uh, you know, what happens if you're the ufologist and you discover that the uh, guy who's uh, newly entered your group and seems to know a lot about aviation is a KGB sleeper agent. You know, what, what does that do to your, paranoid uh, worldview when a different set of paranoia enters your world, right? Because you you don't want to, you know, as as a believer, you don't want to abandon the idea that uh, it's all about aliens. It's like, what? It's all about Soviets? That's no good. And so, you know, that would present the characters with the question of how do they incorporate this into their UFO mythology? Because, of course, that wouldn't be too hard for them to do. So, oh, well, obviously, if there's alien, uh, engines at area 51, the Soviets, this is proof.
1: This is proof that the alien engines are real because why else would the Soviets be coming after them? Right. Um, or, uh, you can also present it as one possible layer of reality. If you're playing a game that deliberately does a lot of code switching between levels of reality, like unknown armies does, or like, um, uh, as a might, um, look at the, uh, the X-Files episode, Jose Chung's from Outer Space, where among the truths of that UFO encounter are a deliberate Air Force, um, uh, disinformation program. And that's as true as the Hollow Earth aliens, as true as the Grays, as true as all of it. None of it is true because all of it is true. And you can put a lot of color into the disinformation and disinformed community, uh, that it's, it has a great, Uh, Grotty feel to it. And the more you read about these people, the more uh, you can imagine their horrible, um, uh, overstuffed, paper filled trailers out on the edge of the Nevada desert. Or you can imagine the sort of dives in New Mexico where they hang out waiting for proof of the tunnels into Dulce and they're sitting there in some horrible, you know, border strip joint, you know, uh, drinking uh, bourbon and, and cross checking stuff in the Lloyd's Register of Aircraft or something. Just the level of horrible self-destroyed obsession, very unknown armies, uh, characters that, that these, uh, people wind up into. Um, I, I think you can, you can make that a compelling, uh, part of a narrative, whether it becomes the full truth or not, the, as you move through this disinformation world, there's still a lot going on. And certainly, um, the whole notion of, a spy versus spy game being played out in the fragile, uh, mentality of, uh people who whose greatest crime was to be, you know, you know, bad at deciding what's true. Uh you know, simple uh what, you know, uh, America southwestern idiots. It it there's a there's a human tragedy aspect to it. It's not, you know, it's not quite the war in Cambodia, but it's still, you know, yet another batch of casualties of the Cold War.
0: One way to uh make sure that players aren't disappointed by the lack of uh actual aliens and spaceships is to have another set of genre elements for them to interact with. So that in the Mutant City Blues world, there is the suggestion that, you know, there's a subculture that believes that the sudden mutation event that gave a small percentage of the world uh, mutant superpowers uh, was of alien origin. So you could have a murder mystery set in the ufological community where it turns out that, in fact, you know, it's a a disinformation operation uh, gone wrong. Uh, And so the players aren't going, oh, well, I wish there were real aliens, because they kind of know in the setting that there aren't, and they still have, you know, flame projection and mind reading and all these other cool genre elements. So it isn't just, you know, the Scooby-Doo effect.
1: Or you can make it a, a, another kind of a thing where the aliens are um, a consensual illusion created by the CIA's actual team of psychics, right? That the, the one genre element is a cover for the real genre element, that you're actually uncovering a psionic warfare program. Instead of secret aliens. And that's like, well, that's still fun. It's And so the aliens actually act as disinformation for the players on the meta level because they think, all right, we're going to go into the uh, big bunker and there's going to be alien corpses and it's going to be awesome. And we all love the X-Files and hurrah for you, GM. You've surprised us. And in t- instead, you go into the place where there's a bunch of brains floating in tanks or um, uh, guys in, in shimmering jumpsuits floating around uh, Tibetan levitation style. That can be the, a genuine surprise as you're investigating what you thought was a UFO cover-up and turns out to be a psychic war cover-up.
0: Right, and likewise, uh, Knight's Black Agents is said in the espionage world, but it has the genre element of vampires. So how would you uh, use uh, this idea of uh, U.S. intelligence information in the ufological community to uh, inflect a uh, Knight's Black Agents scenario?
1: Um, I think that what you can do with this is you have to have... Some sort of vampiric connection to the aliens. And I think the simplest way is to say, uh, the vampires are aliens. They came from a, a UFO crash, either at Roswell or in, uh, Tunguska or wherever. And, uh, maybe that's what the way to do it. The vampires all crashed at Tunguska in 1907, uh, 1908, rather. And they, um, went out and they infiltrated Russia. And so Russia's mostly vampire controlled. And so we know that those aliens are trying to get back to, Uh, Space, So in order to draw out the vampires, the CIA is like, yeah, we got a a crashed spaceship, too, and we're reverse engineering it. Oh, it's it's awesome. So that the vampires will come into America and looking for it, and we can trap them, and we can, like, drain out all their blood and, and figure out what makes them tick. That way, so the pretend crashed alien program is a uh, is a flytrap uh, to catch real vampire aliens, so that we can then dissect them at Hangar Thirteen. So the way into that campaign is that the uh, player characters uh, originally are all
0: uh, new recruits to the disinformation campaign, and they're initially just told, "Oh well, you know, we're just practicing disinfo for the Soviets because mm-hmm. uh, they're low level, and that will give you a series of onion peels to uh, to tear off." Until you uh, start to realize, wait, there's something actually weird going on here. And then for a while you think it's, you know, the classic gray aliens that the CIA has invented. And Because then... gray aliens drink blood, some yeah. of them. Um, so I think we've uh, uh, succeeded in uh, preventing that from being as prosaic as it possibly could be. And since we've uh, uh, shattered the knee of the prosaic once again, it's time to declare victory and the end of another podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors... Atlas Games... Dork Tower... Pro Fantasy Software... And Pell Green Press... Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep us in Phoenix Pate by hitting the donate button at KenandRobinTalkAboutStuff.com.
1: Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or disinformation project by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.